Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I'm James Prescott, I'm your host. Um, really great to be with you all again. I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today, Mark Allen Shelsky, who is an author and a pastor from the States. And we're going to talk about his book, The Wisdom of Your Heart, which is about um, discovering the God-given purpose and power of your emotions. So that's going to be an interesting topic. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you very much, James. I'm glad to be here with you. Um, yeah, um, I'm really excited to talk about this this topic because it's, it's and this book because it's really something that's close to my heart. Um, talking about our emotions and um, our devotions and our faith and about emotions and Jesus and emotions and God and dispelling some myths. So tell us just tell us a bit about the, what the book is about at its core. Well, um, I think the very simplest way to say it is that the book is uh, an argument for the idea that emotions are a central aspect, not only of our lives as human beings, but Mm. of our lives, uh, our faith lives, our relationship with God. Mm. Um, I came to that from my own personal experience uh, where I ended up uh, in a pretty dire situation because of a lot of emotional immaturity and brokenness in my life and ended up you know, going through a, a near emotional crash in my ministry, ending up in therapy, and, and really looking at how, how did I get here? How did I get mm. in this place? And, mm. and there's a lot of elements to that. One part of it was that I was raised, I'm a pastor's son, and I was raised in a, in a religious tradition mm. that really didn't talk about emotions at all. Um, if, if they were talked about, they were talked about negatively, mm. um, in the best possible case, they were seen as a distraction, right? Like, don't let your emotions draw you astray. And in the worst case, they were even seen as temptation. Like, if you feel drawn towards something, that's a good sign that you're being tempted away from uh, what, you know, what's God's will for your life. And so there was a lot of suspicion and skepticism about the intuitive part of our inner life. And then mm. add to that, I'm a child, a survivor of ch- childhood trauma. My dad died unexpectedly when I was 11. Oh, and, right. you know, when we, when we react to trauma, uh, mm. we form these sort of emotionally protective coping mechanisms. Yeah. And one of the ways that I dealt with that was to disassociate from my emotions, right? Emotions felt mm. really scary and painful and out of control and, you know, that, that wasn't what I wanted. And so my reaction to that was to become a capable controller, right? To push away from my emotions and become someone who really hyper-managed all the details of my life, um, kind of on this mythology that I could protect myself and the people that I love from bad things happening, you know? And so then over decades yeah. of life, we get good at what we practice. Yeah, and what what I practiced was disconnecting from my emotions, and so over decades of my life, I became more disconnected, and that ended up bearing a great deal of painful consequences in my in my marriage, in my parenting relationships, in my ministry, in my leadership, and so I ended up in a place where I just had to learn a different way to look at this part of my life, and so after a long, long journey, the fruit of that is uh, the wisdom of your heart. Yeah. Wow, when you told your story, that's so. I resonated so much with all of that because I lost a parent um, at a relatively young age, not as young as eleven, but um, at twenty-three, I lost a parent, and and all those all those things, all those coping mechanisms, all those 
experiences you had were very similar. Um, yeah. um, I kind of buried my emotions and just tried to control everything, basically. Um, right. Yeah, and, and in the moment of in the moment of great sadness, you have to do that, right? Yes. That's a, that's that's a coping mechanism to survive, so you can keep doing your life. Yes. But that's not it's not a healthy way to live. And when we think about it as people of faith, uh, people trying to live in relationship with mm. God, you know, we, we have this kind of language of trust God, you know, live the abiding life, rest in Christ. Mm. All of this language is about letting go of control. Mm. And, and yet, because of my emotional story, I was living the opposite of that, right? Mm. I, I would never have thought theologically that I was not submitting myself to God. I, my theology was all, you know, on the up and up, but what was happening emotionally in my inner world was I wasn't able to live that way because mm. for me to feel safe, I had to live in this place of high control and emotions, you can't control them. They happen mm. to you. Yes. They sweep into your life. They're not something you can control. And Absolutely. so the only way to live with control is to deny them, right? Yes. To pretend they're not there or to numb yourself in some way or to distract yourself. And so we have all of these uh, bad habits <laughs> that we do. Many times they're things that the church has called sinful. And really we're doing them as a way to protect mm -hmm. ourselves from feeling the discomfort, the pain that happens as a normal course of experiencing the difficulties of life absolutely agree 100 percent. yeah um and, what I, and then what happens to the emotions often is that they get buried deep down and then they can right. come up when you don't expect it so you can have bursts of anger or bursts of like just emotion any kind of emotion just unexpectedly um, right. and you're not in control and you're in less control of it than you than you would have been because you've been suppressing it for so long that it's almost right. got a life of its own. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's a lot of men, for instance, that believe they have an anger problem. And what's really the case is that they have a disconnection from their emotions problem. Mm. And what you what you've just articulated is what they experience, that that they have they experience violations in their life. The natural emotional response to violation is anger. And instead of processing that anger, instead of having a way to look at that anger and say, what's this anger telling me about my inner life or my circumstances? They've just been told, I'm a good mm. Christian man. I should not be angry. And so you press it down, you press it down, and it's sort of like holding a, a balloon underwater. Mm. You know, and so you're pressing it down, you're pressing it down, but it's, it is going to come out. Emotions come with motive energy. That energy is mm. meant to move us to take action. And, and so it's eventually going to burst out. And what will happen is it's going to burst out at inappropriate times, right? Yes. So my daughter will slam the door accidentally on her way out the house. And all of a sudden, I'll just have this anger erupt, right? And it has nothing to do with the door. It has nothing to do with my daughter. It's this stuff I've been holding down under the surface yeah. because I am not equipped to process it. Yeah, absolutely. I spent a long time working on my anger. Um, anger was one of my biggest problems after my mum's death because I, yeah. I basically just buried my emotions, like you say, and that was that's a it's a normal thing to do, like you say, but it, it, we have to learn to get in touch with them and so we can so we can start to manage them, you know, and it's it's um, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's a long process, um, but like I mean, what you talk about in the book. Um, you talk about some myths around our uh -huh. emotions. 
um, that like emotions lead you astray and emotions aren't spiritual, you know, um, when the truth is actually something else. So just tell us a bit about, about that. Well, I think in, in the community that I grew up in, and as I've listened you know, to people as a pastor for decades now, um, these are fairly common, right? And so I mm. think one of the ideas is that uh, emotions aren't a spiritual reality. Emotions, that comes from the idea that they're a distraction or they're a temptation. And so the more spiritual I become, the more like Christ I become, the less I'm going to have mm. overwhelming emotions. You know, and yeah. and so we kind of picture in our mind that ideal super spiritual person that they're just serene and they never feel anger because anger is a bad emotion for Christians mm. to feel, and they never feel doubt or any of the things, any of those bad emotions, uh, because they're super spiritual. And and the reality is that what that what what is happening if you buy into that myth is you're really believing that the more spiritual you become, the less human you will be. Yeah. Right? Because emotions are just a, they're a physical part of our creation. Mm. If, you, if you believe that God designed us, yeah. emotions are part of that design. If you believe that God used evolution to form us how we are, well, guess what? The reason you have emotions is because they've been adaptive. Yeah. They continue to be functional Absolutely. in providing survival. So whether you, which, however you believe you came to be as a human being, you can't discount emotions. They are a part of you for a purpose. And so when I realized that, then the next question was, well, what's their purpose? If they have a purpose, what's their purpose other than to irritate me? You know, what, what's the reason that I have these? You know, and so then that, that gets at one of the other myths. You know, one of the myths is that emotions are just transient. They're just these passing feelings, you know. And in the church, the way we relate to that myth is this idea that what you should do as a follower of Jesus is just always do the right thing because it's the right thing no matter how you feel. And mm. the implication of that is, you know, if you feel something, just sleep on it. You'll feel differently tomorrow. You know, it's more important to do the right thing than to think about how you feel about it. Mm. And, you know, there's certainly times, right? There are times when doing the right thing is hard or when doing the right thing is uncomfortable, right? That, that happens to all of us. But those feelings, they aren't just transient. They aren't just passing. They stick around, like we talked about with anger. You know, if I don't process my anger, it, it, it's residual, and eventually it will burst out. Um, if I don't pay attention to the intuitions in my gut in a certain relationship, there may be a toxic relationship that I'm getting involved with, and I have an intuition about that. That might be actually mm. God trying to give me direction, exactly, but I'm going yeah. to disregard it because mm. it's emotional, right? Because it feels like, oh, I'd be following my emotions, yeah. you know? Absolutely. And so we, we end up in, in really bad situations when we believe, you know, emotions are just these flighty, passing, transient things. No, actually not. Emotions are messages from the deepest places of who you are. Yeah. They're telling you something that's going on, yes. and you need to pay attention to that. Absolutely, one hundred percent agree with everything you're saying. Um, and intuition. You know, I've I've been learning to listen to my intuition recently because um, I had a coach who was really good at getting me to listen to it and say, "Well, this is this is kind of like your body, your subconscious, trying to tell you something. Right. You need to listen to it. It's not like this devil or demon or whatever. You know, it's it's it's." it's your body trying to tell you something 
and normally it's yeah. kind of on normally it's kind of on on cue as well it's spot on you know um like sometimes your intuition tells you if somebody's not trustworthy or right. if you're not safe you know uh-huh. um and you know and it knows that before you do so we need to listen to that and then you know you can as good you could call that the voice of god as well couldn't you but it like the holy spirit as well you could call that the nudging of the spirit but we need to learn to listen to, to to these things, and like you say, when you get emotional about something, it's because your body is again you're, something inside you is trying to tell you something. Yeah. That, like, why am I upset? Why am I so angry? Why, why am I, why am I crying? Why, why, why is this having this effect on me? You know, like in my head, cognitively, I feel okay, but why is this doing something to me? Like, I need mean, yeah. to get in tune with that um, rather than kind of run away from it, like you say. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, in that in that way that I grew up distrusting emotions, that led me to be very skeptical of intuition. And so that I was disconnected from all of this sort of uh, wisdom that was available to me. Mm. And so one of the things that I say in the book that often gets a reaction from people is your emotions always tell you the truth. It's just not always the truth you think. Mm. Oh, yes. You know? And so, you know, we have, I was kind of raised with this idea that, you know, emotions are going to deceive you. You know, we have that passage in scripture, the heart is deceitful above all things, you know, and, and so we have this idea that if we feel strongly about something, that's just our own desires, our own selfishness or whatever, when in fact, just like you described, our emotions are a way for our brain and body to communicate to us in a way that's pre-verbal, non-rational, doesn't pass through the slow processing centers of the front of our brain. And so, you know, for example, if you had an experience in the past uh, where you were taken advantage of, you know, that feeling and the information around that experience is stored inside of you deeply. And so now today, maybe 10 years later, you're in a, re- you're in a relationship with somebody and you feel a little twinge of something in your gut. And you don't even know what it is. You don't know why you feel that, but you feel this little discomfort. Mm. What's happening is that past experience that you had, that memory that's a combination of conscious memories and feeling memories, it's in there. And your brain is processing the current situation that you're in, and it's holding these two things beside each other and saying, hey, there's a connection here. There's something going on here that feels the same. You know, yeah. Well, that experience I just described, that's what intuition is. And if you believe that the Holy Spirit has the ability to interact with our hearts and brains, then the Holy Spirit has the ability to sort of bring that intuition to bear as a way to say to us, hey, pay attention, notice what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. You And so that's really crucial. If we're cut off from that, we're basically living life with one hand tied behind our back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with all of this more. This is, I mean, it's yeah. This is such a yeah. This is well. This is what I've been learning in the last few years. You know, through spiritual direction and um, <laughs> and counselling and therapy and coaching. All this. This, this is just. This is all kind of just ticking a lot of boxes for me. Like in terms of my own life experience and what I've been learning. And um, the thing in the book as well, like. Which really struck me, the two things like that stood out. Um, that God as an emotional being and Je- and and the emotional part of Jesus as well. Yeah. Um like I had a conversation with a friend of mine. We were talking about 
Jesus' emotions and um, the, the fact he would have lost a parent, the fact of, that he would have gone through some kind of childhood yeah. trauma of being a social outcast, you know, maybe an outcast with members, some members of his family, you know, um, not being able to get married because of the social stigma around him. Um, yeah. And that would have been emotionally traumatic for him. Um, yeah. And he had to carry that with him, you know, and yeah. And it was weird because I kind of like echo, a lot of it echoed with my own story. And when I realized yeah. that oh, I lost a parent, I had childhood trauma. I had, I was a social outcast as a child. Like, well, this is, this is like, I, I hadn't connected with Jesus in, in this, in that way for a long time. And I really suddenly, I felt like it was some kind of solidarity, you know? Um, yes. Well, I think I think that's part of the the importance of really owning the humanity of Jesus. You know, in church history, we kind of bounce back and forth between how human and how divine we relate to Jesus as. And I think right now in evangelical Christianity, we really swung towards the divine end, where we're really comfortable thinking of Jesus as perfect. We're really th- comfortable thinking of Jesus as having access. To that divine wisdom at all times, being able to do miracles, uh, you know, full of God's direct, direct wisdom. And I think that that makes it, you know, when we think of it that way, that gives us a really tangible way to relate to God, which is wonderful. But the backside of that swing of the pendulum is that we move away from, he's also a guy who sweat and had to go to the bathroom and had human interactions that were with normal human people with the kinds of disappointments and betrayals that are invested in that. And then mm. he actually experienced those, right? That's yeah. what incarnation means. It wasn't that God came down and took on a costume and kind of moved around humans in a sort of play. Yeah. He actually experienced those things. And to experience a relationship with a broken human that betrays you means experiencing sadness and disappointment, right? It, yes. Like Experiencing the death of a friend means experiencing grief, you know, experiencing a relationship with your mom who you feel an obligation to take care of. That means experiencing certain emotions, you know? And so Jesus experienced all of this stuff. And for me here 2,000 years later, that is so vital for this idea of having a quote-unquote relationship with God, right? That's language we use in the evangelical church a lot, that you have a relationship with God. Well, you only can have a relationship via the mechanism of emotional connection. That is what makes up relationships. If you don't have emotional connection, you don't have a relationship. You have transactions. And so for us, right, so for us to have a relationship with God means thinking about this stuff. How was Jesus an emotional person? What would it be like to have a conversation with Jesus that wasn't just, you know, me being a messy human, talking to this perfect guru, dispensing bits of wisdom like a vending machine of spiritual truth? No, that's not what Jesus was. Jesus was a person, right? He had the same glands and brain chemistry and electrical systems that you and I have, which means he felt anger and frustration and anxiety and sadness and fear and loneliness and discouragement and all the things we feel that make up human life. Mm. Well, when I get that, that transforms my understanding of what it means to be related to Jesus because he really does get me. 
Mm, absolutely, yeah. It, like you say, it transformed my relationship with Jesus completely because he suddenly became a much more real person. Um, yeah. Like someone I could actually talk to about stuff because, like, not just as a kind of like distant God who's like, oh, I can take care of everything, but as right. a, like, I've actually, this is, I know what, I know exactly what this feels like. Yeah. I experienced this. I felt this. I know what it's like. Like, and it, and it was, it just, it just transformed everything. Um, yeah. So I mean, what, 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 like, and give us an example of one of the stories you talk about in the book of Jesus, and where he kind of, where we see that side of him. Well, it's interesting, you know, when I began to think about God as an emotional being and Jesus is experiencing human emotions, it really changed the way that I read all the stories about Jesus. You know, I think that I grew up in a tradition that was very um, uh, theologically heavy. You know, our primary mode of worship was to study the Bible and to articulate theology and to be able to uh, to know that stuff intellectually. Mm. And so when you read the Gospels, the way I was brought up, you're almost reading them for the, the little passages of Scripture that you can use for theological instruction, right? So, mm. ah, here's what Jesus said on this topic. Ah, Jesus had this interaction about this thing. This is how he reacted, right? And so you're, you're kind of reading Jesus' life mm. as an encyclopedia of, of either how-to's or doctrinal statements, right? And so when you read it that way, it really drains the color out of it. And so when I began to think about God as an emotional being and began to read the Gospels that way, every single interaction that Jesus has is different, right? When you think about, you know, that Jesus is interacting with the woman who came in the crowd and touched his cloak, right? When you think about that as a story that involves emotions, it totally changes it. When you think about uh, Jesus walking on the water and pulling Peter out, uh, and you think about the emotions involved in that moment, it totally changes it, you know, everything. And so I, I think that it just it becomes another filter, uh, a hermeneutic, if you will, for reading Scripture. Like, what's the emotional reality of this story? You know, and so sometimes it's explicit. Like, we have the, the, the story or the picture of Jesus, you know, it, towards the end of his ministry looking out at Jerusalem, and, and the scripture says that he was, he was deeply moved in his spirit. The Greek word, the swagnizomai, means that he felt this compassion in the bowels. You know, and so that's an explicit statement of Jesus feeling emotion. And, and that compassion, that's the emotion of feeling with someone such that you're moved to act on their behalf. And so that, you know, that's an explicit picture. Jesus felt this. He was moved to sort of, you know, look at the people that were lost and confused and weep for them. And, of course, we know reading the story that he's moving towards the Passion Week. But other stories that aren't explicitly about emotion, they really take on a, a whole new color. You know, so you think about Jesus meeting Peter on the, on the sand after uh, the resurrection mm. and talking with Peter, having this conversation about the denial and then sort of recalling and revalidating Peter, instead of thinking of that as purely theological, right? So, you know, I was raised with that story that it's sort of like, you know, G Peter denied Jesus three times. And so, like math, Jesus is going to uh, forgive and call Peter three times, right? One time cancels out one time. And so now Peter is restored and, and called to ministry, and right? And so, like, all that kind of thinking strips out the fact that here's a man who is talking to one of his very best friends 
who he has had an intense relationship over the course of three years with. They've spent almost all the time together. Mm. The, his best friend has been his chief supporter, his chief advocate, uh, in, a, in an environment where he's mistake, misunderstood and there are people that yeah. are rejecting him. Yeah. And then this best friend, the guy, the guy that you could count on, this best friend, when it comes to a crucial moment, says, no, I don't, I don't know you. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't defend you, he doesn't speak up, he just vanishes, he just disappears. And then it happens two more times so that it's clearly not an accident. It wasn't something that just happened in the spur of the moment. He does it again. And, and you think about the emotions of that, and now, following the passion, following Jesus' torture and execution, following the resurrection, Jesus meets this guy, and you think about how tangled and in turmoil that relationship is. You know, for Peter, you know, everything that, that he's feeling shame and regret, and like he's not the man he said he was, and he sees himself in the mirror, and he's disappointed and discouraged, and, and his whole life, like the last three years of his life, has been like thrown away, basically. That investment that he made in following this new rabbi has been pay off. And then Jesus walks up to him, and what's the immediate, what's the immediate emotional reaction of that moment? Mm-hmm. Right? What's this guy going to say to me? Like, what's going to happen? Like, the last time I saw him was when I, when I turned my back on everything that was true about our relationship. Like, now all of a sudden, that meeting on the beach... Mm is rich and powerful. And when Jesus says to him, uh, feed my sheep, that's not this tiny little theological throwaway line, right? That is weighted with the forgiveness that's not just a theological idea. It's the forgiveness that is a, a betrayed friend looking in the face of a friend and saying, I want to restore the depth of relationship that we once had. You know, and so all of a sudden, reading it, reading it emotionally, takes that experience and just fills it with color and blows it up in, in intensity. You know, and so you can think about Peter becoming the chief of the apostles, Peter becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem, yeah. Peter advocating, you know, for Christianity. You uh-huh. think about that that passion that Peter lived the rest of his life with, yeah. and it comes back to this moment. Yeah, right? absolutely. To all the emotions of this moment where he has this just completely unearned, amazing interaction uh, that is that is emotional, right? Like it's if we just say emotional. that that's yeah. a theological story, then we are we're ripping the central meaning out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That moment is just um, uh, just a is a life-changing moment. That that that's what enables him to become what he became. That right. moment, like right. it's because yeah, he went and through the that. Reason, the reason it's life changing is because of the emotional content. Yes. Right. You know, when you think about your own experience and the things you remember in your life, like the strong memories you have, the reason those memories are strong in your brain is because your brain is associating the sort of logistical details of the experience, where you were and who you were with and what day it was and all that. It's associating that with the emotional content. And when the emotional content and the logistical content are merged together, that becomes a powerful memory. And so the memories that shape you, right, those defining moments in your life when you look back and say, I am who I am because of this experience, those are all situations that had pivotal, 
strong emotional content. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's how we work as human beings. Right? And so, and so when we are disconnected from that, uh, then we fail to understand our own story. When we're disconnected from that emotion, we don't understand maybe sometimes how we're driven. You know, like some of those memories are bad, they're negative, they're harmful, and those stories drive us to do uh, unhealthy things in our future life. But we might not understand that if we're disconnected from the emotional content of it. Yes. You know, and and so all of that, that's how we were made. And so you take that back into scripture and you can immediately see this is the moment that sets up the early church. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. It's what gives it its... Impetus, yeah, absolutely. That energy, that comes from Peter's emotional experience of Jesus' interaction with him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, you see, uh, that's it. When you you start examining the stories from an emotional point of view, they suddenly become completely different. They become human stories, and you can actually connect with them more. Um, that's the whole yeah absolutely um, the other the thing you, you think you just touched on it a little bit but the, the in, in the book you talk about there's, there's about recent brain research which like tells gives us a bit more insight into how our brains work and how we're designed so tell us a bit about about that and what you learned from that well I think probably the one thing that was most impactful to me there's, there's so much I mean there's incredible yeah. books that are out right now uh, that take uh, academic research and make it really understandable. Um, you know, there's uh, emotional research. Uh, the body keeps the score is a great example that yeah. talks about the way that our brain and body work. There's a lot of these right now. But the one thing that that really impacted me because of my story was mm. reading studies that demonstrate that our body is aware of emotional experiences before our conscious mind is. And there were there were a number of uh, studies that they did that they did that they, they could demonstrate this. You know the that the connection between the body and the emotional experience. Uh, there was a, a study where they instructed people to um, mechanically manipulate the muscles of their face into certain shapes. Mm. You know, so they would say, uh, you know, squint your eyes together, lift the corners of your mouth. You know, they wouldn't say smile because you understand that, but they would just give instructions mm. to how to manipulate the muscles of your face in such a way, right? Mm. And, and then after doing that, they would have the people do a little inventory that included uh, tracking information about how they felt. And they, could, they demonstrated in this study that, that they could actually uh, shift or evoke certain emotional experiences in people by having them adopt certain shapes in their face. Wow. Right? And, and, and so you think about this the other way, right? That, that this is part of the reason why emotions are contagious, right? I smile, you see me smile, and you smile. Yeah. And when you smile, that body posture of facial muscles, that body posture is connected up to your brain, and your brain is like, oh, happiness. Like, that's the thing we're having right now. Mm. And then you begin to feel it, and you begin, you be, you be, begin to become conscious of it. Um, uh, other another study, um, uh, they uh, there was a, a study where they they had a, a sequence of, of uh, pictures of faces um, in different uh, emotional postures that they would show as a slideshow, and um, they're really obvious, you know, very uh, obvious facial expressions of happiness and sadness and joy and whatever. Yeah. And then they would have pictures that were horror, terror, but those pictures they would show 
for such a short period of time that it was less than your conscious, you know, it was basically subconscious picture. Like you, you couldn't, yeah. it went so fast, you didn't see, you didn't consciously see the picture go past. So you're seeing the sequence of pictures, happy face, sad face. And then in between is this picture of someone feeling terror, but you didn't consciously see it. And then they show some other faces and they would track, um, you know, being able to track brain waves and being able to track blood, uh, heart pressure, uh, blood pressure and being able to track sweat. They would track and they could see emotional spikes of fear that happened at the exact moment that the picture of a terrified face was shown, even though the conscious mind was not aware that they had seen that picture. Wow. Right? That is incredible. And so that, yeah, it's, it's, it's stunning. And so what, what those sorts of studies reveal is that the way we are, the way we've been created, is that we're super sensitive to this kind of data, this kind of emotional intuitive data. We're so sensitive to it that it's faster than our rational cognitive processes. Um, in fact, you know, in the, in, the, in the sort of wiring of the brain, I'm not a, a brain expert, but just from my, my studies of it, um, in the wiring of the brain, the flow of information that comes in through the brain kind of goes through a sequence of, of brain systems. Yeah. And the amygdala is this brain structure um, that is sort of the high alert center, right? When something happens that's scary or threatening, the amygdala goes off and that triggers all kinds of reactions within us. Well, there's a shortcut from the amygdala to the centers that trigger all of these reactions. So as the data is coming in, it flows through into your conscious mind where your conscious mind can process it and decide what to do. Yeah. But from the amygdala, there's a shortcut that completely skips that process, right? So when something happens, you know, a driver whips out in front of you in traffic, mm. you don't have to take the couple of milliseconds to go through the conscious process of going, oh, there is a driver who's threatening my life in front of me. I must apply the brakes. Like, you know you don't have to do that. You just immediately react. Well, why does that happen? Because of this shortcut from the amygdala. Your body is consciously aware of the threat even before you, you, even before you have processed it. And so what all that means and what it meant to me, why it was so impactful to me, is that this says, hey, you got to listen to your body. Yeah, absolutely. You have, to, you have to listen to your body. Your body is the early warning system for emotional reality. And so things mm. like uh, cold sweats, uh, your palms getting cold, uh, tension in your shoulders, tightness in your neck, uh, headaches, tension headaches, um, twisting in your gut. Like these things mean something. And it's not just physiological. They are messages about your emotional reality. You know, mm. uh, in my story, for years and years and years and years, I had regular sort of ongoing stomach issues. Um, tension in my gut or feeling slightly nauseous. I mean, I was one of those guys who carry around a jar of Tums, you know, antacid tablets in my mm. briefcase. And, you know, I'd go into a meeting and I'd feel that feeling in my gut and I'd chomp down a couple antacids and just sort of ascribe it to, you know, I ate something rich at breakfast or, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not feeling well, I'm getting a cold or whatever, you know. And it took sitting with my therapist <laughs> and having my therapist connect dots for me, having her say, oh, remember the situation yeah. that you were in? And do you remember talking about this feeling? Oh, look, and having that happen repeatedly for me to realize that my gut is warning me about conflict, that I'm conflict avoidant, and whenever I anticipate going into a conversation that's going to be high conflict, I start to feel a little sick to my stomach. I had no idea, right? 
Now, you might feel like, oh, yeah, that's obvious, Mark, but I was clueless to that. <laughs> yeah. You know? No. And, so, and so now it's a tool that I can use. That's a, an example of how that's been transformative in my life because now I have this little warning. Oh, I'm feeling that feeling. Huh. Am I anticipating this conversation is going to be difficult? Why do I feel that way? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's incredible. Yeah, and oh, I almost got no words to say because it's just so obvious when you think about it to listen to your body. You know that the body's always trying to tell you something. Like I, I, I had this. Uh, I've been dealing with a like a chocolate addiction, like a sugar. You know. Um, and one of the things my coach told me to do was when you feel that impulse, like resist it for long enough uh, and then start to examine it and like, okay, what, why, why am I feeling that? What do I want right now? What is my body needing right now? What is, why is my body craving this? You know, right. and it unpacks right. so much emotional stuff for me. I was able to like, just move move through it and start writing down all these things that were going on like oh well, this is why i i want to have this like piece of chocolate like right right 10 right. o'clock at night yeah, or something no, that's exactly the process right so you're like oh, wait a second i'm wanting this right now it's two in the afternoon am i actually hungry let's check no i mean i i ate a big lunch it's clearly not about calories so what is it that I'm needing yeah, here, yeah. you know? And, and you can dig down into it and go, oh, right, that, that for whatever reason, is connected to a serotonin dopamine hit for me. I feel happier when I eat that. Yes. So why am, I, why am I feeling like I need to feel happier right now? You know, oh, right, I'm feeling alone. You know, I'm feeling yeah. discouraged. Okay. Yeah. Well, exactly. is eating this chocolate going to solve my aloneness? No. Okay. Right? You know, that whole process yeah. that you do, I was never equipped for that, you know, in the, in the world that I grew up in. The discipleship in the church was, you know, read scripture regularly, memorize scripture, learn how to articulate our theology, um, uh, work really hard to avoid and deny certain activities or feelings that you have. Uh, show up at church activities regularly, volunteer, give your mm. give your tithe, yeah. you know, pray in these particular ways that we've trained you to pray. You know, and so that's kind of the, the set of tools I was given. And so, you know, here, if I had this issue you're talking about, out of that set of tools, how would I deal with an addiction to chocolate? Okay, well, uh, I'm going to basically first identify it as sin because that's the only framework I have. And so then how do I deal with sin? Well, I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to ask God to protect me from temptation. I'm going to maybe get, you know, accountability amongst Christians who can ask, ask me if I'm, you know, uh, staying away from sin, right? Okay, that's, okay, that's fine, but none of that deals with, none of that addresses mm, exactly, yeah. what is really happening. Yeah, and what's really happening exactly. is I need this hit, I need this hit of dopamine because of something happening emotionally within me. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. Um, and that's true with any addiction. I mean, that's right. really what it's about. It's about the hit, you know. Um, yeah. And that can be that can be caffeine, even it can be anything, you know, you use to kind of numb the pain. Like even right. religion can be an addiction. Church can be an addiction. You know, it, it, right. we just go there to escape and to hide away from our pain. You know, and we're not actually dealing with what's really going on underneath the surface. Um, yes. and that's a difficult thing to do and you need to do it with 
support and community and like people like therapists or anything like that you need you need that kind of thing but it um but you need to actually deal with it you know that you need to kind of face the pain not numb the pain right yeah and that's something we as a church have not done well with Mm. um you know when i went through this process and began to kind of share my journey you know i came to a place where i just was really convicted that the only credibility i had in terms of my role as a pastor was rooted in my current experience with god and what god was doing in my heart Mm. and that i couldn't just stand up and preach sermons that i was that were that were distant from my lived, current lived reality. And so for a season, we spent a lot of time talking about this stuff and, you know, talking about difficult things, talking about pain and disappointment and, and, you know, how we live with those things. And there were folks, there were many folks that that is not what they came to church for, Mm. right? They wanted to hear, I have won the victory stories. They wanted to leave Mm. with with, uh, kind of a new serving of hope for the week. You know, and I want people to have hope when they come to church, but I want that hope to be rooted in real life change, not in mm. just the problem of God's in charge and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Right. I yeah. Agree. Okay. Okay. Maybe everything is ultimately going to be fine. But in the immediate moment, there's a lot of difficulty, pain, disappointment, frustration. How do we deal with the difficulties of the world that we live in and oppression mm. and people being injured and marginalized like how do we face that and and a lot of people uh decided that that our church wasn't for them because we were talking about these things you know and on the other side there were other people who were like i've never in my life heard these kinds of things talked about in church i am so grateful that we can talk about mental illness i'm so grateful that we can talk about depression i'm so grateful that we can talk about uh living with these things as followers of jesus i've never heard that and uh, that, you know, sort of became this defining moment for us as a community that was it okay for us to talk about these difficult things? And some people just, it wasn't, you know, and I think that's the heritage of the Christian church in the, in the modern era is that we want to talk about um, the, the joyful stuff. We want to talk about, uh, you know, victories won. We want to talk about conversions. We want to talk about, you know, all of these wonderful signs that God's among us, but when I go back to the story in scripture, um, God's among us still in the painful situations. <laughs> yes. Right? Absolutely. In, in the garden, right? In in the yes. diaspora in Babylon. Yes. In, in those painful moments of isolation and loneliness, God is there too. And if mm. our theology is only that I'm connected to God when I feel the goosebumps and when, when God's demonstrating blessings in mm. tangible ways, then we're, we're undermining and destroying our faith in the faith of our children because we're telling them the only way you'll know that you're connected to God is when you feel good. And that, yeah. that is not, that's not real life. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, God wants us to feel the pain. Jesus felt the pain. Yeah. And I always had the example that I used actually once with somebody was when Jesus is, on the, is, is being crucified, they offer him vinegar to numb the pain. And he refuses it because he wants to feel the pain. He doesn't want to numb or escape like that. He wants to feel it and experience it um, because it's real, you know. And um, I think that's a really great example for us. Um, Yeah. But I I mean, we're coming to the end now. But the thing I wanted to kind of 
kind of close with was um, how can perhaps something practical like how can we learn to notice our emotional responses and and listen to them um, well I think that the very very first thing um, that begins all of this is learning this may sound cliched but man it's changed my life learning to practice being present um, I, you know, the way that I grew up, my head, my consciousness was always somewhere other than here. Um, I was caught up in worry or planning or strategy about the, the next moment, the next conversation that mm. wasn't now, it was in the future, yeah. or I was sort of rehearsing and, and digging through something I did in the past that was a mess and how that conversation went and what I should have said and all that stuff. And so my, my consciousness was either in that past moment of regret or in that future moment of worry. And that had real impact on my relationships because when I was sitting with someone, I was never actually here with them. You know, like I'm at the very least thinking about the next thing I'm going to say. I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be able to give good wisdom. And so I need to really get that next bit of good advice ready so that, you know, I'm never here. And, and so practicing being present what is happening in this moment how do i feel in this moment what do i see in this moment was really transformative for me and this is not just like you know new age weirdness this is this is something that has transformed my relationship with god uh and here's how um god exists outside of time uh god is not bound by the linear experience of time you and I are creatures of time. We live in time. Yes. The only place, the only place where God's existence and our lives intersect is this present moment. That's it. And so if I have any hope of having a relationship with God, and I, don't mean, I mean that as an actual sense of connection, not a mm-hmm. theological or, uh, abstraction, if yeah. I have any hope of having a relationship with God, then I have to be attentive to this present moment. This present moment is the only place I can hear the Spirit. This present moment is the only place I can respond to the call of Jesus. This present moment is the only place where I can rest in the grace of the Father. This present moment is it. And so much of my life, so much of my personal baggage, and so much of the Christianity I was raised in was about other times and places, right? I'm going to think about heaven. I'm going to think about eternity. I'm going to think about uh, the past. I'm going to think about that moment I became a Christian and when I said the magic prayer. Like all of the, you know, even that moment when I'm walking down the sidewalk and there's a guy asking for a dollar, I want to think about, well, what's he going to do with that dollar? You know, is he going to make a moral choice of that dollar? Am I, you know, and I'm not even here with that person. I'm thinking about some future thing. And so my whole life experience was training me to be present to some other moment than the moment I'm in. And the only place where I can connect with God is this one present moment. And so when I began to practice this, which was a fruit of my emotional journey, it deeply, deeply changed my my relationship with God, my spiritual journey. I mean, all of a sudden, I began to have uh, what I had been talking about for years, which was an experiential connection uh, with God because practicing presence. Yeah. here right now yeah and, and you ask for something practical one of the one of the simplest ways to begin practicing being present is noticing what's happening in your body um, I, I still do this uh, periodically a thing that I call a body scan where I just 
close my eyes and I picture myself as I currently am, like the chair I'm sitting in or whatever, and I just consciously think through every aspect of my body. Like the way I do it, because I have a very distractible mind, is I picture kind of like a white light just passing like a scanner at the grocery store, just passing yeah. through me, right? And I think about each part, like the top of my head and my forehead and my eyeballs and my breathing and my nose, and I just kind of move through my body and just inventory. Yeah. What What is going on for me, right? Yeah. And, and coming out of that, you'll notice things, right? Like I feel like my hands are really agitated and they can't stop moving and my knee is bouncing up and down. And oh, I also notice that my thoughts are really buzzing and flying around right now. Like all of that is just stopping to be present. What is going on in this moment? Mm. And, then, and then when you combine that with the information that we talked about earlier, the idea that your body is conscious of emotional experiences before your rational mind is, then you can say, okay, here's what's happening in my body right now. My body's really antsy and full of energy. What, what's going on? What am I feeling? Mm. You know? And now I'm conscious in this moment. I'm paying attention to what's happening to me. If I'm in a conversation with you, then that stuff that's happening in me has to do with us. It has to do with what's going on in our conversation. Yeah. You know? So now I can notice that and go, oh, I'm feeling really antsy and excited in this conversation with James. I wonder what that's about. You know, and we can begin to go into that. That is all stuff that's grown out of learning to practice being present. Uh, another book recommendation, um, uh, Greg Boyd has a little book called, um, oh, oh goodness, I'm going to forget the name. It has Present, present Perfect. Present Perfect. Present Perfect, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, it's a tiny little book. It's amazing. And it's all about this practice for Christians. How do we as Christians learn to be consciously aware to God's presence in the moment. And that's just been mm. honestly transformational for me. Yeah, and another book, about, another, another book I read about being fully present was How to Be Here by Rogal. Yes. Well, that's an amazing book about being fully present in the moment that you are in and like noticing things. And I, I actually remember practicing this and I was sitting in a park and I noticed, I noticed this, this tree above me and I actually started to notice all the different colours and the different on, on each leaf, how every leaf was different, and yeah. all the variety of colours on each leaf. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is all like every leaf is unique, and it's all designed slightly differently, and it's all got a different. And it was like I wouldn't have noticed that if I had not been fully present in that moment. Yeah. And um, and that's just noticing something external, but you can also notice internal things when you're fully present, like saying, what is going on in me. You know what? What is? Yeah. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling? Like if, yeah, I think a lot mind? of Christians in the world I grew up in would hear the story you just shared and go, "Well, that's nice, but it's not important." You know. But what you're talking about, like noticing the variations of color in the leaves, that kind of presence is a muscle. Like it's something we can practice and get better at. Yeah. And when you practice it, you open yourself to being aware of the Spirit's guidance in ways you've never before. Right, mm. that the Holy Spirit is talking to you in very subtle ways. You know, we have that language in the Old Testament, the experience of the prophet, where God appears not in the whirlwind or the earthquake or you know those things, but appears in what the language we've used in my church was the still small voice. Yeah, right? I remember that. But when, you, yeah. but when you look at the Hebrew for that phrase, it's translated "still small voice." It's literally the sound of silence. Mm. And so the idea that wow. God's message was coming to the prophet in something as subtle as silence, how do we how do we pay attention to that if we're not being present? Like if our whole life is 
is event and epic and noise and distraction and smartphones and busyness and accomplishment. How do we notice that? How do we hear God speak in the moment of silence? Well, that is about, that's about the stuff we're talking about. Mm. That's about learning to be present, learning to pay attention to the intuition, uh, learning that God speaks in these quiet internal places, and we can practice that and get better at it and have it come more naturally. And, and that's amazing because then the, the stories we grew up with, the idea that people could have a connection with God, that they could hear God's guidance, those stories become real. Mm. Uh, they're not just mythology reserved for super, super spiritual people that we're never going to be. No, that can happen for us. We can have a sense of God's direct guidance in our life if we're paying attention to these places of silence, to God speaking in our inner spirit, uh, and that involves intuition and emotion and all that. That is fantastic. That is brilliant. Um, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface of this. It's, you know, it's, and there's so much we can talk about here. It's, um, it's such an important, such an important topic for me um, personally. And, and I've discovered this kind of freedom in my own life. And it's like, I really want to recommend this book, The Wisdom of Your Heart. Um, it's on Amazon. Um, I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I'd recommend it to anybody. Like it's got, it's got all, everything we've talked about today, but in a lot more detail, and there's a lot more as well. So, I, I really want to recommend that to people. Um, and thank you for coming on the show. I'm really thrilled that you had me. I'm so thrilled that um, you know that you found the book and that it was meaningful to you. That's an incredible encouragement to me. Yeah. You know that my that my journey of pain and and discomfort and learning and growth can be a benefit to somebody else is just. It's, it feels like redemption, and that's wonderful mm. to be a part of. And uh, to be able to have this conversation with you about it, just is just it's really rich. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime on the show, as ever. Like, I think yeah, we could talk about this for ages. So um, yeah, and how can people connect with you online? Just um, sure. Um, the easiest place is that I make sure everything I do is shows up in some way on my website. So my website is uh, www.markalanchelsky.com. So it's M-A-R-C-A-L-A-N-S-C-H-E-L-S-K-E.com. I'm in all the main social media spaces, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those places too. But you can always find, you know, what I'm working on. I blog a couple times a month about uh, inner life and spiritual growth. Um, I have a podcast called The Apprenticeship Way, where we talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus in these ways. And um, uh, I always link to that from my website, but you can find it, you know, in all the podcast catchers out there. And, and uh, you know, the books are in all the places that you can buy books. And uh, I'd be happy to talk with anybody about these kinds of things. I'm, I'm pretty accessible uh, via, via email and social media. And so if somebody reads this and has questions, love to talk. Great awesome thank you um yeah so thanks for coming on the show and i hope everyone listening this has been really helpful for you it's definitely been helpful for me so um yeah thanks again mark for coming on my, my pleasure